So I know it's been a couple of weeks, uh, uh, might not remember, um, but we started this question and answer series at the beginning of summer, which is based on questions that you all put in the box there and trying to go through and answer those things over the summer. This is actually the questions that I was going to answer last week. Unfortunately, I tested positive on Saturday for COVID, and so I uh, quickly texted the elders, and they scrambled, and uh, I sent, it sounded like it was a good Sunday last week, right? Uh, so, so appreciate them. God, you know, worked it all out. Uh, but we're back to this series, and we've actually got three questions to answer today. I would say this. Let me start with these ground rules. I, I've, I've mentioned this each time. Basically, I'm taking your questions and trying to provide just a biblical perspective on the questions that you've given. On some, there might not be a clear answer. In fact, there's one today that's, that probably doesn't have a, a, a really clear answer. But when that's true, I'm just going to give my perspective on that. Um, there might be multiple perspectives, but I'm going to give you mine and just try to answer it as if you're asking me this question, right, and how I would respond to it. Today, I would say we're, we're covering three questions that are around the topic of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection but they're not central to the gospel. They're kind of peripheral questions around that. that. But I'll try to answer them as best as I can. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time uh, to, in worship to you. Thank you for these questions and the opportunity we have to, to look at them. Just pray that uh, you would be honored in our time, that uh, what you want us to walk away with, uh, we would, that we would be open to, to listening to to your truth, and that be uh, different people walking away than we came uh, as today. Pray this all in your name. Amen. So, first question of the three is this. Was there significance behind Jesus being buried for three days? Why three? Why not four? Why not five? Uh, it's a good question. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Why wasn't Jesus dead seven days or, you know, 40 days or, or one day, you know? Why three days? Well, the first thing is this, and this is semi-obvious, but I think it's important to cover. That is the way it was supposed to happen, right? Everything that happened during that Passion Week following was all a part of God's plan. He had it worked out well beforehand and knew exactly how it was going to go down, and it went down the way that it was supposed to go down. So, and Jesus talked about this many times. Uh, Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day, right? That's part of the plan. John 2.19 says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This was so clear, this three-day timeline to the people of that time. Jesus communicated it so well and so often that actually the um, religious leaders were, were sure about this too. Matthew 27.63 says, they said, the, these religious leaders, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. So even, the, even the, his opponents knew that, Jesus, that it was the plan for Jesus to rise on the third day. This was the plan, okay? So why did he rise on the third day? Because that was always the plan. Now, I think there's more to it, though. 
Three days in, in Jewish tradition indicated you are actually dead, okay? Now, I think we would think once you flatlined, right, you're dead, right? You're dead when you flatline, right? Uh, keep in mind, they didn't have the instruments that we have today to detect uh, heartbeats and things. And I think this tradition actually grew up, I, I don't know this for sure, okay, this is just conjecture, but I think it grew up after probably some mistaken deaths, right? Like people thought grandpa died, and then like hours later, he woke up from his nap, and they're like, oh, he didn't die. We thought he was dead, right? His breathing was so shallow or whatever that they just didn't know. So this tradition w was created that after the third day, someone was definitely dead after the third day. In fact, uh, in the Midrash, which is uh, a rabbinical text, so there were uh, obviously rabbis throughout the Israelites' history. There's rabbis today, but, but during Israelites' early history, there were rabbis who taught on, uh, on things, kind of filled in the gaps on, on things in the law that, that weren't clear. And so they would teach uh, quite frequently. There were rabbis in Jesus' day. But they, this idea was, was created among Jewish rabbis that a person's soul actually stayed with the body until the third day. So this, that, that period is, is called the Hibbut HaKever, and I'll, and I'll give you a little uh, piece of the, a rabbinical text here, okay? This is uh, from the commentary on Leviticus by the rabbis. It says this, Rabbi Abba, Rabbi Papai, Rabbi Joshua of Siknin said in the name of Rabbi Levi, by the way, this is how rabbis spoke all the time. If you ever wondered why people were surprised by Jesus speaking with such authority, right? He was always like, You've heard this, and I tell you this. And they were like, wow, why, why, why is Jesus speaking this way? It's because rabbis always spoke this way. They were always referring to some other rabbi to give the, themselves the, the authority to speak. Okay? This rabbi said that that rabbi said, and this rabbinical group said, and now I can say what this is. Right? So he, they give this list. It says this, For three days after death, the soul hovers over the body, intending to reenter it. But as soon as it sees its appearance change, it departs. So picture this. In their minds, the soul hovered over the body. Okay, the body's dead. It's laid out, right? And the soul hovers over the body, and it's, it's confused. The soul is confused. It doesn't know what's go it's gone on. It doesn't know that it's dead yet, okay? And it takes three days for the body to start to change, right? Not look quite alive, and then the soul looks at it and goes, oh, I'm dead, and then it leaves, okay? That's the idea. So he goes on, its appearance changes, it departs, as it is written, when his flesh that is on him is distorted, his soul will mourn over him. Bar Kapara said, the full force of mourning lasts for three days. Why? Because for that length of time, the shape of the face is recognizable, even as we have learnt in the Mishnah. Evidence to prove a man's death is admissible only in respect to the full face with the nose and only by one who has seen the corpse within three days after death. So the body's still recognizable on day one. The body becomes unrecognizable on day three is the idea. The soul figures it out. The soul leaves. Okay, this is the rabbinical tradition. Now, this is not true, by the way, let's just be clear. Okay, it's just rabbinical tradition. But it's, it's, it created this 
this tradition of what's called a Shemira, which is that a Jewish body, even to this day, those who hold to traditional Jewish teachings, even to this day, the body's not to be left alone. So they'll have someone come. I, I know this from funeral service. When I was in, in, worked in a mortuary, we had many Jewish clients. They would have someone come and sit with the body. And they usually took shifts. So that 24 hours a day until the body was buried, that, that someone would be with the body. Because they would end up reading um, psalms to kind of comfort the soul that's hanging out there waiting for the body to be buried. Okay? This is the idea. So I think this rabbinical tradition is part of the three-day plan. I can't say it for sure, but I think if it would have been earlier than three days, if it would have been earlier than the third day, then the religious leaders might have argued, as actually some have later, that maybe Jesus never really died. In fact, there was a, a, a common um, theory called the swoon theory. It's totally debunked now. But like 19th century, this was big, that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross he just swooned. He just passed out. And then after three days, he came out of the grave. He had never actually passed away. It's ridiculous. There's no way, um, based on his wounds, there's no way he could go uh, th three days without food and water, all that kind of stuff. But that was a theory. And, and I think there might have been a concern here early on that Jesus was never really dead, that the soul was, was not, had not left the body. So three days helped it make it very, very clear to everyone involved, including the Jewish leaders, that Jesus was actually dead prior to the resurrection. That's my theory. So, why three days? Most importantly, it was part of God's plan, right? We know that clearly. But I also think uh, it was a verification of his death, that he was truly dead. There you go. Question one, down. All right, question two. Some believe that Jesus went to hell and ministered to souls dwelling there, or was himself tortured there? Is that true or false, and why? There's also some additional things that I couldn't fit on the slide up here that was on the card, which says, was it a mistranslation? Did he simply gather believers from Abraham's bosom? What, what was there before Abraham's bosom? Lots of questions here, okay? And we ever heard of this uh, theory of Jesus going to hell during the three days while he was dead? Yeah. So it's understandable why things like this might occur, questions like this might come up, because what happened to Jesus for three days? You ever thought about that? Where was he? What, what, what was he doing between his death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday? right? So these questions have swirled through Christians' minds over the centuries. And of course, any kind of question like this that swirls through Christians' minds, there becomes, I want to say theology, it is theology, concerning that. And some people are convinced that certain things happened during that, some, that time period. I will say this, just right off the bat, I don't think there's any clear evidence in Scripture where Jesus was or what he was doing during those couple of days. I have no idea. I'm kind of a guy that tends not to think linearly when you're talking about outside of the body, okay? So we, we very much think in, time, uh, in, in terms of time, right? Our whole life is one second after the next second after the next second after the next second, a minute after a minute after a minute, hour after hour after hour, day after day after day. We have never experienced anything but that, 
because we are bound by time here, right? But when we leave the body, time will not be a thing, right? Which is a weird thing to think about. The idea of eternity is not minute after minute after minute, ongoing with no end. It is the absence of time. It, we will be outside of the presence of time, which I know some of you are going, wait, how does that work? I don't know how that works, right? Because we only know time, right? So I would go, Jesus probably was nowhere for those two days. He was out, outside of time. But let's talk about where this idea comes from, okay? And let me be very, very clear. It doesn't come clearly from Scripture, okay? It comes from actually uh, what's called the Apostles' Creed. So this was a 5th century creed. There were actually many creeds that happened in the early centuries of the church. Uh, the reason for the creeds was to unify Christians around core biblical truths, uh, especially because there, was, there were a number of people coming into the church trying to mislead the church into error uh, over clear biblical teaching, and particularly because people, many people were illiterate in the churches, so they couldn't go to scripture for themselves. They created these creeds that they could unify around and say, hey, we all believe the same thing, and here's the clear thing that we believe, okay? So the first instance of this is in what's called the Apostles' Creed, and it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Okay, and on and on and on. This is where this idea comes from. And so people who have recited this creed over the years, in fact, there are still churches today, the Catholic Church recites this creed uh, very prominently. Uh, also, uh, some of the Anglican Church, Lutheran churches sometimes re recite this creed today. Although many people recite a more modern version of this, which actually changes the word hell to death. He descended into death. And the reason for that is actually a translational issue, that actually probably the way that they would have understood this in the 5th century is not hell like that fiery place where apparently the devil and the demons torture people. That's, that's our view of it, which by the way is not at all biblical. That is, uh, I, I, unfortunately, I think our understanding of heaven and hell comes more from Dante's Inferno than it does from the Bible. Hell is not a place where the devil dwells. The devil does not want to go to hell. He will go to hell. At the end times, he will be cast into hell. But he doesn't live there now. Neither does his fallen angels. They do not live there now. They do not torture people down there. I remember um, when I was a kid, I loved this movie. I still love this movie. My family always rolls their eyes anytime I talk about this movie, but it's called Legend. Anybody ever seen Legend with Tom Cruise? It's a very obscure movie, but it's, but it's actually, I, I really like it. But it has this, like, devil character, and he's torturing people in hell. And so as a kid, like, that was my view of it, too. Like, oh, man, like, hell's a bad place where the devil's going to torture you. No, the devil's going to be tortured. It's actually a place that's been prepared for him, right? But to get back to this, their understanding of this probably was not hell, that fiery place, but into death. He descended into death. He died and he remained dead for three days is probably what this means. There's also a, a, another creed during the 5th century called the Athanasian Creed, which also said 
he suffered for our salvation, descended into hell. Same thing, probably descended into death. But, of course, because it says descended into hell, people have repeated this over and over again. Some people every Sunday are repeating the Apostles' Creed. Then this idea comes in, oh, maybe Jesus descended into hell, right? This place of punishment for those who have not chosen to follow Christ, right? And that he did something down there. Now, I will say this. There, there are two passages that we're going to cover. But I will say this. Unless you already have this view that Jesus spent a few days in hell, there's no way from either of these passages you get an idea that Jesus spent a few days in hell. So as we look at it, you might go, oh, I guess I can maybe see how someone might get that from this. But these, are, these passages I'm going to show you are two very um, unclear passages. And I don't think we should hold to any real strong theology based on passages that are pretty unclear. And these are unclear. And my problem, honestly, isn't even holding to the idea that maybe Jesus spent a couple days in hell, you know, ministering to some people. Maybe you hold to that view. It's the views that come after that that are the real problem. It's the views that spawn from that that are the real problem. Ideas like purgatory does not exist biblically at all. And that's spawned out of this idea, right? So I'll just express my concern there. Let's look at the two passages, okay? Here we go. First one is Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, or 11, actually. I put that on there wrong. Okay. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Keep in mind, the context of Ephesians 4 is he's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about the fact that we have all been gifted by God in a very unique way, and that the Holy Spirit, while we all are unified in the Spirit, we are all very unique also. We have unique abilities, unique ways to serve the body. That's what he's talking about, okay? But it says he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now here's where it gets a little strange. Look at 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. You see, that's just this kind of side note where he throws in this idea that really two things. One, he led, host, uh, he led captive a host of captives. It's, it's, it's a vision of, like, uh, of him bringing people out of prison, right, out of jail. It would be like a jailbreak is the picture here, right? And, and he says he ascended, which we know he did do that, right? But it says he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. Well, we all know the lower parts of the earth. What's down there? Hell. In Dante's Inferno, that's where it is. Okay, <laughs> but not in reality, not from a biblical worldview. Uh, that's not where it is. In fact, this is so much more easily understood if we recognize that the lower parts of the earth, which I think I have Isaiah in here, don't I? I do. Look at Isaiah, okay, Isaiah uh, 44, 23. 
It says this, shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Where are the lower parts of the earth? Here. It's us. It's where we're at right now. It's not some place in the ground, right? And, and hell's not down there anyway, right? That it's here. It's people on earth. And what Jesus did, now this is my interpretation of this passage, is Jesus descended to this earth to suffer and die for you and me to lead us out of our own captivity, right? Our captivity to sin. That's the plain reading of this passage, and he's given gifts to men, which is, is an obscure reference for us because we don't understand the fact that when warriors would go into battle and they would conquer a particular area, they would bring back spoils. And those spoils would be distributed among the people. They were given gifts. Uh, the people were given gifts. Even those who didn't go and fight were given gifts. That's the reference he's making here to the gifts, is this picture of Jesus springing us from, from our own captivity and, and that victorious Christ giving us spiritual gifts. That's what he's talking about. A plain reading of this would get you there. If you're already coming from a place where Jesus descended into hell, I guess you could pull that from here, right? But I don't think it's the easiest reading of this. All right, let's look at one more. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going I'm to read a little bit up to this. It says, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which he also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient. Now, I will grant that this is a confusing statement. It is. In fact, Peter at one point calls out Paul and Paul's writings for being a little confusing. He's like, sometimes Paul's stuff is a little bit hard to understand. I would say the same thing could be said about Peter. Sometimes his stuff is a little bit hard to understand. I think this is a little bit hard to understand. And so people, in my experience, are going to take unclear passages like this and create weird theologies out of them. That's been my experience. That's when I look through church history, the weird theologies usually come out of random verses that are unclear, okay? And this is unclear. But you can understand how someone might, if they've gotten this idea in their head that Jesus descended into hell for three days, where he, they might get this idea. Because it says, having been put to death in the flesh, he died, right? But made alive in the spirit, so his spirit is now alive during those few days, Right? Then he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Well, where is spiritual prison? Hell. You see how they're like connecting dots? And it's, and it's to people who were once disobedient. Well, that would be people who are disobedient who are now in hell, and he went and preached to them, made proclamation of something to them. Now again, sure, right? But not a, not a plain reading of this. You've got to read a lot into that to get to where some people are on this issue, okay? By the way, these are the only two possible passages you could get anything like the idea of, going, of Jesus going to hell for three days. Is it clear? Should we take some sort of theology off of these two verses that Jesus spent 
Three days in hell? No. But it sounds pretty good because the, the theory here is that, G, that, well, there's multiple theories, okay? One is that Jesus went to hell to people who were disobedient and proclaimed the gospel to them about his death, burial, and resurrection, and that he actually freed some of them from hell once they heard the gospel. Okay, that's a stretch. It's a big stretch, I'd say. The second theory is, and this answers one of the other big questions that, that is sort of unanswered is, well, maybe what you have is you have this group of, of Old Testament saints, okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, right? You have all these people who are pre-Christ who have gone to this um, holding spot that we're going to call Abraham's bosom. Well, that's a little bit of a stretch because Abraham's bosom occurs in one passage of Scripture. Uh, did I have it on here? I don't. And it's when Jesus is giving a parable. We should never take um, truths like this out of parables because Jesus is telling a story to make a point, okay? But he's telling a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. You guys familiar with this? So Lazarus goes to where? Abraham's bosom which simply means, it sounds kind of weird, right? It means that Lazarus was wherever Abraham was, was next to Abraham. And that's actually what Abraham's bosom means, is wherever Abraham is, but it's not clear where he was or is, that's where Lazarus went in this story, this parable, okay? People will take that and say, you know what? That means all pre-Christ death saints, did you get that? That was kind of weird. Before Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, everyone who had faith prior to that point all went to this holding place that we're going to call Abraham's bosom, and Christ spent three days freeing them from this temporary place, now bringing them to heaven. I hope you can see that that's a huge amount of conjecture based on very little information. I mean very little information. I don't think we should be pursuing ideas like this. If God wanted us to know what Jesus was doing for those three days, would he have, been, would he have made it clear to us? He would have. He would have made it clear. And so this is another one of those situations where I think our curiosity just needs to kind of go away <laughs> and just go, you know what? Do what my youth pastor growing up said, which is put it on a three-by-five card, stick it in your front pocket, and hold on when the rapture comes, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that you can pull that out in front of Christ and say, hey, where were you for those three days, right? Because we don't know, and it's okay that we don't know, and it's better for us not to make decisions about this and then have these bad theologies come down river of this weak theology that are really bad. If this theology is weak, then any sort of theology that grows from it is super weak, right? And it's prob problematic, a lot of it is. All right, hopefully that wasn't too long on that question, but it's, it's a complicated one. All right, last question. You can see why I'm saying this all surrounds Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but these are super, super minor issues, right? What Jesus accomplished by, in his death, burial, and resurrection so much more important than these kind of minor things, right? All right, third one. This one's long. The answer's not very long, though. Since the Gospels are plain in their teaching that Jesus asked to eat a Passover meal with his disciples, 
But this meal is 24 hours prior to when Moses directed it, and Moses makes no such allowance, and Paul says Jesus is our Passover. Did Jesus and the disciples really eat a Passover meal since the lambs would be slain after he ate the meal on the day he died, or did he eat a different meal? Whew. Someone got really wordy writing on that card. So I will say this. This question is not unimportant question in the, in the realm of theologians, okay? In those ivory towers where they talk about this kind of stuff and really try to nail down these nuances, there's a lot of discussion over this issue because of, of this. I'll show you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm just going to read through them. You'll see what's going on. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, that's important, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? What kind of meal is Jesus eating? The Passover, I think it's pretty clear the kind of meal that he was asking his disciples to prepare for, right? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared what? The Passover. I think they're going to eat a Passover meal. Now, I would say they probably did not have lamb at this Passover meal. I'll explain that in a second. Mark 14, 12 through 16 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, important time frame marker, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you to carry a pitcher of water and follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover? What kind of meal is he eating? the Passover, with my disciples, and he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the, to the city and found it as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover, right? Luke 22, 7 through 16. Uh, then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, and Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And he said, where do you want to go prepare? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you and carry a pitcher of water, follow him to the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat, eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. Very repetitive, right? And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What kind of a meal does he want to eat with his, his uh, disciples? The Passover. He's earnestly desired to eat the Passover. He wants to do this. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, it seems pretty straightforward what occurred, okay? On Thursday night... Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus, on Friday, went to the cross, died Friday afternoon, right? Then he was buried Friday evening, and he rose on Sunday. Time frame pretty well laid out, okay? Now, if we go with that basic time frame, the assumption would be that Wednesday was what's called Nissan 14, which was, they dated things differently, they didn't have our, our date, it was Nissan 14, which was what, the, the first day of unleavened bread, okay? And that's when the preparations 
happened. They ate the meal beginning on Nisan 15, which would have been Thursday evening, okay? Another weird thing with this, this is going to get confusing. I was thinking about how to explain it. I'm just going to try to lay it out there. Understand, our days work from midnight to midnight, right? That's how it has always worked all of my life, all of your life. That's the way things work. Their days didn't work like that. Their days worked from sundown to sundown, okay? So the evening of Thursday evening was actually the next day, basically, okay? And that would have been Nisan 15, which was the proper day to eat the Passover meal, okay? So we're good. Everything's good. Nisan 14 was the evening of Wednesday. Nisan 15 was the evening of Thursday, and Jesus died on Nisan, uh, well, the end of Nisan 15, okay? Because he died before sundown. Now, John creates a problem for us, okay? John says this. He says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they, they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. This is the religious leaders, Okay? They don't want to enter the praetorium because they would become unclean, ceremonial, un- ceremonially, ceremonially unclean to eat the Passover meal. And they would actually, it would take them a full day to become clean again, ceremonially, ceremonially clean. So they wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover. So their concern is we're not going to go into the praetorium because we won't be able to eat the Passover. The problem is this is happening on Friday morning. And the assumption is they want to go eat the Passover Friday evening. But that would make Friday Nissan 15, or the evening of Friday Nissan 15, which creates a timeline problem. Are you tracking any of that? <laughs> okay. This is why it all happens in the ivory towers of these theologians who discuss this kind of stuff, right? So there's lots of solutions to this because theologians write books on this kind of stuff, and it works out for them, right? They can keep their tenureship because they're, writing, they're publishing papers on, on this kind of timeline stuff, right? Now, there's a couple of options. I'll just throw them out there. One is that Jesus was using a different calendar, that there were actually a couple of calendars that were in use at the time. He might be using what's called the Qumran calendar versus the traditional calendar. And so he actually ate on Nissan 15, and the religious leaders actually ate on Nissan 15, but it's because they were using two different calendars. Okay, that's a pretty big stretch. If you study the, the, the information on that, I think it's a big stretch. There's a belief, well, there's a, a possibility, but there's very little evidence to this, that there were, that the Passover was celebrated on separate days depending on what region you were from, okay? So the Judeans would have uh, celebrated on Nisan 15, but the Galileans, which is where Jesus is from, would have celebrated on Nisan 14, which would be Thursday. And so everything's copacetic because Jesus kind of did the Galilean thing, and now the religious leaders are doing the Judean thing, okay? Following all that. My problem with this is there is the, the evidence is so weak, it's pretty non-existent on this particular one. It sounds like a nice way to resolve it, but uh, I don't know, okay? Now, the third option, and uh, it's a very popular option, is Jesus did not eat a Passover meal. Because th- there was actually a whole week, uh, like eight days, 
that was considered kind of the Passover season, right? The Passover week. There was a, there was a long festival which included the Day of Unleavened Bread or the Week of Unleavened Bread uh, where they couldn't have any leavened bread. And, and it was all kind of Passover. And so Jesus didn't eat a true Passover Seder. He ate some other sort of Passover week meal. I think that's pretty weak because the synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are pretty clear that Jesus strongly desired to eat the Passover meal. I think he ate a Passover meal. Now, here's my take after all that. I'm kind of an Occam's razor guy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, right? The simplest solution is usually the right solution. I'm a pretty simple guy. I just want the thing that kind of adds up most easily. I think Jesus knew of God's plan that he would be dead the night when Passover meal was normally eaten. I think he knew that, right? He did know that. And that he would be actually in the tomb at that time or being put placed into the tomb at that time. I think he arranged for an early Passover meal. I think he ate the Passover meal a day early. Now, I also believe, and my only evidence for this is an argument from silence, which is not a good argument because it's, it's just not commented on. I don't think they had lamb at this Passover meal, which would have been a little weird because Passover you usually have lamb, right? I don't think they did. There's no mention of lamb in the Last Supper. It's actually part of the reason why some people don't believe it was a Passover meal. And the biggest problem timeline-wise is there would have been no lambs slaughtered by the priests at this point. Because the priests slaughter on the afternoon of Nisan 15. Okay? I think he ate a lambless Passover. And I think there's an easy explanation for this. God provided the lamb. Right? Jesus was the lamb. Right? So no lamb needed, no sacrifice needed this particular Passover and the Passover since. Now, the question is... And the question, question in the question was, Moses didn't allow for this. Jesus could not be within Mosaic law and be eating the Passover early. No one does this, okay? Well, for one, that's actually not true. There was allowance in the law to eat Passover actually a month later. If, there was, if you were traveling, uh, if you were unclean, uh, like the, the priests were worried about being, uh, or the religious leaders were worried about being, if you were unclean and couldn't eat the Passover, there was allowance within the law to eat a month later. So you could eat at, at a different time. It's not unprecedented for the Passover not to be eaten on this on 15. But I think it's bigger than that, I, or, or easier than that, clearer than that. I think Jesus was very, very clear in actually another situation in Matthew 12. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. No work on the Sabbath, right? And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. This was a big no-no. Can't do this, according to the rabbinical traditions. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry and he and his companions, how they, he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? 
Okay, he's saying there are exceptions to the rules. You guys are too caught up with these rules. The rules were meant to benefit Israel, not to be some sort of restrictive way to uh, hold power over other individuals, right? That's his, his argument here. But this is the important thing. But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I think this principle, Jesus is Lord, right? I think this principle can easily be applied to the Passover situation. Who's Lord of the Passover? Jesus, right? Uh, Is he allowed to eat the Passover meal whenever he wants to eat the Passover meal? Definitely allowed to do that. And, And there is something greater than the Passover at the supper, right? And that's Jesus himself. I think Jesus is fully within his rights to eat the Passover early. So after all of that, I know I bored you guys to death with all this uh, theological wranglings, but I had to answer the question, right? Bottom line is this. This is my view on this. Jesus and the disciples ate the Passover meal a day early, minus lamb. They ate it on Thursday when it was not the, was not, that was not the day that everyone else was going to eat. That was going to be on Friday. Jesus was arrested. He was uh, killed, put up on the cross, buried. Well, let me stop there. He was killed around the same time that the lambs were slaughtered. Almost exactly the same time that the lambs were slaughtered. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb, Right? He's the ultimate sacrifice. And in order for him to be sacrificed at probably the right time, he could have been sacrificed at any time, but there's significance to him being sacrificed when the lambs were sacrificed, right? In order for him to be sacrificed when the lambs were sacrificed, he had to have the Passover meal a day early. So he was sacrificed when the lambs were sacrificed. He was dead and buried while everyone else was carrying on Passover. I think that's how it happened, and it's fully okay in my book for Jesus to eat a day early. So, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for uh, these questions, even though uh, they're very kind of academic in their, in their pursuits. Uh, hopefully, they help bring some clarity for us who have questions about these things, that maybe we'll have some information to be able to discuss if someone ever brings these concerns to us or have, has questions about these things that... We just want to be prepared with, with some sort of, sort of answer, some sort of information on these things. And Lord, more than anything, we just want to worship you for what you accomplished. What you accomplished when you died for us, the just for the unjust, that you took our sin upon yourself, that we have no concerns over our sin, both in the past and in the future, because you took care of it fully as our Passover lamb. And that uh, we never have to sacrifice again. We never have to make personal sacrifice in our life to recompense for our sin. We never have to do anything to win you over because you did everything. You accomplished it all on the cross. And that you rose again victoriously to be living Lord of our lives. Thank you for all that you accomplished during this time period we discussed this morning. In your name.